Um, I don't know if any of us actually care about this game tonight, but uh, I'm actually very, we got a few people, Patriots or Eagles? Patriots, I hope that nobody is, is bold enough to say they're going for the Eagles tonight. I just, oh, 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 okay, that's happening, that just happened this morning. We will really pray for you because you're going to seriously need it today. So um, uh, anyway, I also want to give a, a quick shout out. This is my mom's birthday today, and she's going to be watching online, and so I just want to say, I love you, mom. Happy birthday. She tells me she's 30 years old today, uh, which brings up a lot of questions about my past and history. But anyway, um, anyway, so if you just please pray with me, and we'll go ahead and open up God's word together. Father, it's a joy and a privilege to gather together in freedom and to be able to worship you. And God, we don't take it lightly that you've given us your word and you've given us your spirit in this gathering of people. And, uh, Father, you've given us safety and comfort and so many graces and blessings every day. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise that you alone are due. You only are God. And Father, you spoke and the worlds came into being. You numbered the hairs upon our head and you uniquely made every single man, woman, and child in this room. God, you've given us purpose. You've given us favor, Father. We praise you and we thank you. And God, as your word is opened up today, we invite your Holy Spirit to change us and to, and to teach us this morning, God, that we would not leave here the same as when we first walked in today. Father, we invite you to come and to move and we humbly just bow um, at your feet, just recognizing who you are and who we are in light of you, God. We love you. We again, we thank you for this day. It's in Jesus' mighty and holy name that we pray. Amen. And amen. It is good to be back again this morning. We're going to jump back into uh, the series we started back at the beginning of the fall. Last week, we were kind of in our World's Missions Week. Uh, this week, we're going to keep going in, in a series we've been calling The Big Story, where essentially we're doing exactly that. Genesis to Revelation, all the major themes and stories that are tying the one big story of Scripture all together. This morning, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and, and open up in Daniel chapter 6. And if you remember from a couple weeks back, we, we jumped into the beginning of Daniel's story a little bit, and I kind of wanted to do part two of that. Uh, but a, a couple weeks ago, we asked this question. We said, how do you live well when you're living in Babylon? Uh, that's essentially the, the, the question that Daniel's story is going to address uh, from the onset. But how do you live well when you find you, that you're no longer in the religious majority in your day? When you're surrounded by antagonism, you're surrounded by people, men and women, who do not hold the exact same values or religious convictions that you face. Like, how do you live well when you're living in Babylon? Real quick, does anybody remember some of the things that we talked about last week? Um, you get rewards in heaven if you, if you take sermon notes and, and remember things like this. So uh, I'll give you a little hint. We talked about uh, something that sounds kind of like humility, uh, respect, and conviction. How do you live well when you're living in Babylon? I mean, that's exactly what we see in Daniel's story, just profound amount of humility and, and respect of the people who were in authority over him, and then a conviction, an unwavering conviction to never bow when everyone else is bowing. It's yes, sir, and it's no, sir. It's things like in, in verse 20 where it says that in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the other magicians and enchanters in the entire kingdom. In other words, they took uh, their responsibilities very seriously. However, when it came time to eat the king's food or to bow at the 90-foot statue of King Nebuchadnezzar, essentially, then uh, those are the things that they were unwilling to bow. I want to keep going on that a little bit more uh, this, morning, this morning, and I want to talk about um, how humility, respect, and conviction is sustained over about 65 years of living in Babylon. In Daniel chapter 6, we're going to pick it up about, uh, Daniel's going to be about 80 years old. 
And uh, the question I'm wondering is how in the world is those, are those kinds of attitudes sustained from the time that he was a teenager to the time that he's about 80 years old when all you've got is antagonism around you? And I think we kind of get some of this tension here. There's a difference between being a one-hit wonder and sort of having a Hall of Fame career, right? I mean, there's a difference between Millie Vanilli and, and you too. I, I mean, they're just very, very different things. Like one kind of did an awesome thing one time maybe. Uh, it probably wasn't even them. But then you've got this Hall of Fame career that we're all celebrating today. It's the difference between Nick Foles and Tom Brady, too. So, um, oh, whoa, whoa. I didn't expect to go there. Sorry, that was not in my notes. need a teleprompter right there. I think we saw a good example of this a few weeks back. Like, like two Saturdays ago, um, we saw a great example of kind of what I'm talking about. If you were here at the, at the memorial of Tim Stone, and if you've been around the church for a long time, you probably know a little bit of Tim's story. But, uh, or even if you had a chance to go to the memorial service two Saturdays ago, one of the comments that everybody was sharing afterwards was that that was a life that was well lived. And if you were there, you kind of heard a lot of the stories, or if you knew a little bit about him. But uh, if you don't know Tim Stone, like a couple of things to note is that uh, he was born with spina bifida. And you probably recognize him as a man who was uh, constantly in a wheelchair, but he was at the doors every single, well, a lot of Sundays up until recently. Uh, it was faithfully greeting week in and week out. He always had a smile on his face. And if you were there at that service, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, just a beautiful thing to be able to celebrate some of the stories about his life. Uh, one of my f- personal favorite stories about him uh, was that, um, gosh, it was probably about a year or so ago, I had a chance to go visit him in the hospital just before he had uh, his first leg amputated. And I uh, went to go talk with him and pray for him. And we walk in and and he just had a giant smile on his face. He was laughing with me. He was joking about his, his handicap. Uh, he was joking with the nurses about it and stuff, too. It kind of caught me off guard. And I was like, okay, this is not the typical kind of attitude that you have just before you go in to have uh, your leg amputated. And I was praying with him. Then he reached up, and the nurse walked in the door. And, and she goes, hey, he goes, hey, I want you to meet Aaron. This is my pastor. This is so-and-so. And, and he said, hey, is there anything that we can pray for you about? And he brings in this nurse, and, and I was just so caught off guard, and he's just sitting there about to go in and have his leg amputated, and he's asking how he can be praying for this nurse. And that was kind of what he always did. He always had a smile on his face, was always serving other people, and this is a guy who lived in a world of Babylon for a handicapped person and some of the things that he was dealing with. And so the question is, like, how do you sustain that kind of faith for 65 years when everything around you is antagonistic and in opposition to the things that you believe in. And I think that's, that's what Daniel's story is going to help us with uh, this morning. So again, if you have your Bibles, chapter 6, we're also going to be in chapter 9 if you want to put uh, a finger right there in the story too. Um, there's a lot that's happened in the story so far, and I want to catch this up just very, very quickly. But um, the Old Testament, what we're seeing here is it is largely about God's story and his plan of redemption coming to the ends of the earth, largely through his people, the Israelites. And this, there's, there's going to be two major covenants that are guiding the entire thing. The Abrahamic, which is going to be coming in in Genesis chapter 12 and 15, where God promises Abraham, I'm going to give you land, people, and blessing. It's the nation of Israel. And uh, that's what he develops over that time. And then the Mosaic Covenant is going to come, and it's going to largely be a missional covenant whereby he promises to bless them if they are faithful to walk with him for the entirety of their days. And, uh, and so that's largely what's going to be going on there. And, of course, what we've been seeing so far is the tension uh, between knowing what to do and actually being able to follow God faithfully in obedience. And so there's all these waves, and there's all these waves and cycles of disobedience and repentance and everything else. And we get to about 931 B.C., King Solomon's passed away. The kingdom is now divided in two. There's a northern kingdom called Israel. There's a southern kingdom called Judah. 
Uh, there's going to be all this tension and there's going to be all this division that's taking place because idolatry has sunk into the Israelite people. In 722, the major prophets are coming on the scene. They are warning the Israelites that they need to repent and come back to the Lord. Of course, that message is not exactly getting through. 722 BC, the Assyrians are going to be taking over the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, and they're going to be uh, the, the first major wave of, uh, of captivity that's taking place around that time. And then about a little over 100 years later, at about 605, the Babylonians are going to be in power. And they're going to be taking over the southern kingdom of Judah. There's going to be three major deportations that are taking place at this time. That's important to understand for the rest of the story here. 605 BC is where Daniel chapter 1 picks up. And that's going to be the first major deportation. The Babylonians have conquered uh, Jerusalem, which is the capital of, the, of Judah. Um, they have conquered them, and they've taken the first wave of people back with them to uh, back away from home. And that's going to be Daniel's story in 605. 597 is going to be Ezekiel's time when he ministers, and then 586 is going to be the third deportation. And that's going to be really the final time when Jerusalem is absolutely destroyed. Uh, the temple's burned, and everything's just torched to the ground, and that's the major thing that's kind of going on at that time. Uh, 539 B.C. is where chapter 6 is going to pick up. And uh, this, this is important because uh, there's a, another shift in power that's taken place. It's gone from the Assyrians, the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians, and they take over around the 600s. And in 539, the Medes and the Persians are taking over. And uh, you're going to see the shift in power in Daniel's story. Up until for the first five chapters, it's been Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, in chapter 5, it's going to be King Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar. And in chapter 5, he's going to pass away, and it's going to be the Medes and the Persians that are taking over now. It's going to be King Darius. Uh, the, the, the controversy with Darius is there's not a whole lot of history that's talked about with him. And so um, there's a lot of confusion about who he might actually be. A lot of scholars think that he might actually be Cyrus that's talked about there. But uh, nevertheless, King Darius is going to be in power at this time. And this is going to lead into really the third wave of of uh, revival that's going to be taking place in Daniel's story here in chapter 6. And so um, that's kind of what's taking place. Again, important to note that chapter 1 is teenage Daniel. Chapter 6 is 80-year-old Daniel. A lot of time has passed, okay? And that's where I want to pick it up here in chapter 6, verse 3. Um, it says, Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps that by his, by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. I love that part. Like these people are so desperate to find something against Daniel that they're willing to make it illegal uh, for him to be a worshiper of God. And just kind of looking at that going, may that be true of us, right? Like it may, may our quality and may our integrity be so exceptional that they're saying the only way that we're going to trap them and, and find anything against them is if we make their faith and their integrity something that's illegal. Uh, verse 6, so these administrators and satraps, they went as a group to the king and they said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, the satraps, and the advisors and governors have all agreed, and not all of them actually agreed, by the way, uh, that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now your majesty issued this decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So think... Um, 
think like pinky swear times infinity, right? Like that's how serious of a, of a bond that this is. Like this, the, the law of the Medes and the Persians is a covenant. It's a commitment that can never be repealed. It's a pretty major thing that's going on here. So verse 9. So King Darius put the decree in writing. And I love this, verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. I love that. And this is exactly what we saw chapter 3 a couple weeks ago with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? There's just this, this defiance about what's going on. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going, okay, you're going to throw us in a fiery furnace if we don't bow to this idol. I, you, can, you can literally take, you can take my name, you can burn my home, uh, you can throw me in these schools and force me to learn sorcery and witchcraft and things like that, but, but I will never bow. Like that, it's the exact same thing that Daniel's, that Daniel's facing here. You're going to be throwing me into a lion's den if I don't stop praying? Like seriously, I, I got death penalty for prayer? I, it does, I, I don't care what you throw my way, I'm never, ever, ever going to stop praying. Uh, I love what Samuel Chadwick puts in his book, The Path of Prayer. Here's the importance of it. He says that the one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. Our enemy fails nothing, or our enemy fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, he mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men and women of power. Prayer brings fire, it brings rain, it brings life, and it brings God. There is no power like that of prevailing prayer. Church, that is why he was so committed to keep on praying. Like, he understands that prayer is the key to the power of God being unleashed in his life. I mean, it's been the testimony of God from the very beginning. Check this out. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 107. It says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storms be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Church, that's what prayer does. It unleashes the power of God in our lives. Like Acts chapter 1, there's about 120 believers at this particular point in time. They're in the upper room and they're praying together. Um, the Holy Spirit comes. Peter preaches the most simple gospel message in the world and about 3,000 people repent and are saved that day. A few chapters later in chapter 4, it says that the early church is still gathered regularly to keep on praying. And it says that the Holy Spirit fills them with boldness. And by chapter 5, there's about 10,000 new believers in Jerusalem that are serving the Lord faithfully that day. Acts chapter 12, like Peter's imprisoned for preaching the gospel, and, and, and the church gathers to pray for them, and the Lord, the Holy Spirit, miraculously blows open the doors of this prison, and Peter walks out alive. Like, James is going to say it like this. James is going to say, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone among you happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church in order to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer that is offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that they may be healed because the prayers of a righteous person accomplishes much. Church, that's what Daniel believed. Like, he actually believed that the prayers of a righteous person accomplishes much. He actually believes that prayer is the key to the power of God being unleashed in his life. Church, how do you maintain humility, respect, and an unwavering conviction for 65 years when you're living in antagonistic Babylon? Here it is right here, verse 10. Three times a day, Daniel was on his knees in prayer, giving thanks to his God, just as he always had been doing before. There's, there's two words that that I think define Daniel's prayer life 
uh, here in this story, the first word that comes to mind uh, is very, very simply just discipline, right? Like, like, if there's anything that defines his prayer life here, it's just disciplined. It is a disciplined prayer life. Like, when you're 80 years old and you're on your knees three times a day, no matter how uncomfortable it is, no matter how you're feeling in that moment, like, I don't know what else to call it except for discipline. Church, let me ask you this question. Like, does discipline ever fail? Does discipline ever fail? Like, think about this for a moment. Like, I want you to honestly just think about the person in your life who's one of the most disciplined people that you know. Like, I was, I was thinking about this question. I was talking about it with my men's small group this past week, and immediately, like, two people came to mind. I just, I grew, I'm immediately thinking about my parents. Um, dad, like, faithful, faithful man. Like, every morning, I, I, I would regularly walk down in the middle of the night and go down and get a glass of water in the middle of the night, and I would come down and find Dad in the living room, and he'd be on his knees, and I would just sit around the corner listening to him pray for his family. Like, I remember Mom, like, like before we woke up early in the morning about to go to elementary school, right? You remember elementary school is the 7 o'clock, you got to be there time. Like, Mom was up there really, really early in her office every single morning, and I could hear her outside of the doorway of her office just in her, just praying out loud to God. Like, does, like, does, does discipline ever disappoint? Like men and women who just, you, you want to faithfully honor over and over and over again, discipline never disappoints. Like even on a natural level, I think that we get this. Um, I was reading not too long ago, uh, I guess the Olympics are coming back up, but um, they were doing another article about uh, um, Michael Phelps and his training regimen. You guys catch this a whole lot? Like the dude that won the most medals in the history of the world, right? Like his training regimen was absolutely, and it was ridiculous. Um, it says that... Uh, in peak training phases, Michael Phelps swims a minimum of 50 miles a week. Like, I don't even know that I drive 50 miles a week a lot of times. Uh, but in peak training phases, the dude would swim 50 miles a week. And on top of that, like, he practices twice a day, five to six hours a day, six days a week, sometimes more if he's training in altitude. He talked about his diet a whole lot. The guy ate 12,000 calories a day. And some of us are like, I, I do the same thing. But, like, it's, it's different for him because he has... A little different regime, 12,000 calories a day, 4,000 calories per meal. For breakfast, he eats three fried egg sandwiches with cheese, lettuce, tomatoes, fried onions, and mayonnaise. He drinks two cups of coffee, then consumes a five-egg omelet, a bowl of grits, three slices of French toast with powdered sugar, and three chocolate chip pancakes. Like for lunch, he eats a pound of pasta, a pound, like a whole pound of pasta right there, two, 1,000, what, what, hold on, uh, a pound of pasta and two... Uh, large ham and cheese sandwiches on white bread with mayo. He then drinks about a thousand calories worth of energy drinks, and for dinner, uh, he would eat another pound of pasta and a full pizza, followed by another thousand calories of energy drinks. But like that's what it takes to be an elite athlete and to get to the point that he doesn't. And we get this, but like, but like discipline does not. D- d- discipline always delivers. I mean, all we're talking about here with discipline is a commitment to do the very things that you know are best to do, regardless of how you feel about them. And you can remove that, that picture there and stuff. But like, that's all we're talking about with discipline. It is a commitment to do the things that you know are best to do, the things that give you life, regardless of how you feel about those things. And so that's what we're talking about here. Very, very different from legalism. Right? Very different from legalism. The thing that I hear probably more than anything else about why I should not be a disciplined person is this fear of being legalistic about it, right? You ever heard this excuse given in the church? Uh, it's a way to justify not being a disciplined person is because I don't want to be legalistic. It's not what we're talking about here. Legalism is the thing that we find in the New Testament that Jesus is always rebuking in the religious elite and the Pharisees of his day. 
Like, like legalism is very, very simply men and women who trusted in their disciplined obedience for a sense of self-righteousness before God. That's what discipline is, and so if you're afraid, or that's what legalism is. So if you're afraid of being legalistic, the solution is not to stop being disciplined. The solution is to come before the Lord on a regular basis and to repent of the object of my trust, which has become my own disciplined sense of obedience. Right? Are we seeing the difference here? Like, it is not to, to stop being a disciplined person. It's to simply say, God, forgive me for being this person who is trusting in my disciplined sense of obedience for a sense of self-righteousness before you. You are the only person who can bring righteousness into my life. Forgive me for those things. But the solution is not to stop being a disciplined person. Like, discipline is a gift of God. 2 Timothy 1.7 says that the Lord did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and one of love and one of self-discipline. Galatians is going to say that it's, a, it's actually a fruit of the Holy Spirit, that as we surrender to the Holy Spirit and as he produces his life inside of every single one of us, he's going to produce things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and what? Self-control, discipline. In other words, this is something that he gives us and this is something that he wants to produce and develop inside of every single one of us because discipline never disappoints. So here's the thing, if we know that that's true, which I think probably most of us understand that discipline never disappoints, then why is that so hard to actually do? I talked about that question a lot this past week with my men's group, and we were talking about all the different factors that may come in to play about what keeps us from being disciplined men and women who pray on a regular basis. And we talked about a lot of different things. We'll never be disciplined people of prayer if we don't enjoy being with Jesus, number one, right? Like, we'll never be disciplined people of prayer if we're not desperate for God to move. But the thing that we probably talked about more than anything else was that we will never be disciplined people of prayer if we don't believe that prayer actually changes anything. And I think we feel that we, we felt this tension from time to time. Like, we've all had these moments where we pray about something uh, a lot. It's, I mean, sometimes I pray and it feels like nothing happens in response to my prayers. And then there's other times when I don't pray about something, a thing that I kind of wished I would have prayed. It seems like that thing sometimes happens. And you're sitting there going, okay, did prayer actually move or did it change anything? Even this past week, uh, Caleb asked me, we were praying before bed, and he kind of pipes up and he goes, Daddy, does, does Jesus actually hear us when we pray? And I think we've asked that question a lot before, right? Like, does prayer actually change anything? And I love the way that C.S. Lewis talked about this. He said this, and Uh, hold on to it because it's kind of controversial but he says that i pray because i can't help myself i pray because i'm helpless it may not change god but it always changes me and i kind of have a love-hate relationship with that quote a little bit because um you're right like our prayers do not change the character of god they do not change the mind of god however scripture is incredibly clear that god moves in response to our prayer all the time but at, the very least, but at the very least, what C.S. Lewis is acknowledging here um, is that prayer is the means by which the Holy Spirit of God like, always changes me. At the very least, like prayer is the means by which the Spirit of God is always changing me. I was reading Mark Batterson's book called The Circle Maker. Um, I think I got that right. And um, He had a fascinating take on Matthew chapter 26, which is the, the famous story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you may remember this, but this, is, this scene is taking place the night of Jesus's um, right before his crucifixion, uh, it's just before his betrayal, and Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. He wants to get away and pray, and he brings his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and as he goes into the garden to pray, he says, stay here, keep watch, and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. And then he leaves them behind, and he goes into the garden to pray. And he goes out a short time, passes, and he comes back, and what does he find? 
Peter, James, and John have fallen asleep on the job, right? First of all, can you imagine, like, falling asleep on Jesus? Like, that's just bad news right there. But, like, they, they've fallen asleep in the garden. Jesus comes back, and here's what he says. He says, couldn't you keep watch with me for even an hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so Jesus goes back into the garden again to pray. And he says, stay here, keep watch, pray, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus comes back again after another time, a second time, and he finds them asleep one more time. And he repeats the command, keep watch, pray, for the spirit is willing for the flesh, but the flesh is weak. And he goes back into the garden to pray. A third time goes back, and they've fallen asleep one more time. And you remember what happens a little bit later on that night, right? Like what happens with Peter? Jesus is taken away. Jesus is betrayed by the, by the people. He's in chains and stuff. And they recognize that Peter was one of his disciples. And all of a sudden, three times that night, he, Peter denies even knowing who Jesus is. He denies even knowing who he is. He wants nothing to do with him. And here's the hypothetical of that whole story. It's like, what would have happened had Peter stayed awake that night praying? Like, what would have happened that night? Like, if he would have understood what was going on there, like Jesus specifically told him, watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation for the spirit is willing. You probably don't want to deny me. However, the flesh is weak. Like, what would have happened had Peter stayed awake and believed that prayer is the means by which the spirit of God strengthens your spirit and overcomes the weakness of your flesh? Like, it's exactly what Paul's talking about in Galatians 5 when he says, So I say, walk by the Holy Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Church, how do we walk by the Spirit? It's daily submission to God through His Word, and it's coming to Him humbly on our knees in prayer, saying, God, would you come and lead me? Holy Spirit, would you lead me? Would you, would you speak to me? Would you give me the power to overcome these things that are going on in my life? Would you fill me today? Would you take me? and Would you make me aware of the situations that you're putting in my life where you want to glorify your name? God, would you come and use me for the glory of your name? Why? Verse 17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with one another so that you're not to do whatever you want to do. In other words, there is a war that is going on inside of our heart, and disciplined prayer is the means by which the Spirit of God strengthens your spirit and empowers you to overcome the weakness of your flesh. Church, like, what would have happened had he stayed awake and prayed? And and let me bring that back to us. Like, like what victories would you and I be walking in today had we believed that prayer was the means by which the power of God is unleashed in your life and it is the means by which he strengthens your spirit to overcome the weakness of your flesh? Like, what victories would would we be walking in today if we believed that? And some of us need to hear that because like, we're, we're, we're walking in the exact same temptations that we walked in last year. And we're, dealing, we're, we're falling in the exact same patterns that we have the entirety of our life. Like, Lord, this is the last time I'm done with pornography. I'm done with it. I swear to you, God, I'm done with this whole thing. Like, I'm done with the lying. I'm done with the cheating at work. And I'm done with looking at these things over here. I'm, I'm done with the greed and materialism of this day. Like, I'm done with my passivity, and I'm ready to engage the mission of God, and I know that you've called me to these different things, but, like, we've made these promises to God. Like, what would have happened had we not fallen asleep on the job? And we really believe that prayer was the means by which the Spirit of God strengthens your spirit to overcome the weakness of your flesh. How does Daniel thrive for 65 years, humility, respect, unwavering conviction, three different revivals while you're living in Babylon three times a day? He is on his knees and he is praying and crying out to God just as he always has done before. Discipline, discipline, discipline prayer never, ever, ever fails. The second word that I think characterizes 
uh, his prayer life is uh, defiance. And I love this word. You know that about me. I say it a whole lot, but I think that is absolutely what we're seeing here. I identify with this word a whole lot. I love to defy uh, the cultural norms of the day. I love to defy a lot of different things. And defiance is good as long as it's directed at the right things and it's done in the right ways. But I think it's exactly what we see here in, da- in Daniel. Like when a king signs a decree saying that you're going to be thrown into the lion's den if you pray, and then you turn around and you're going, okay, no, I, I, it does not matter. You can throw me to the lions. You can kill me. You can take my life. I'm, I'm, I'm never going to stop praying. Like that's the definition of defiance. Church, when, when things are not as they should be, uh, it should always drive us to pray. And it's exactly what we're seeing here with Daniel. I mean, Jerusalem has been destroyed. Like the temple of God where people gathered day after day to worship the one true God, like that thing was burned to the ground. Like the Babylonians were in power, and Revelation is very, very clear that they are the epitome, they are the height of evil in the world uh, for, the, for the entirety of our days. Like the Persians took power, and the amount of evil that was, that was true in that, um, in that culture was just horrendous. Like, and it seems like that the Israelites, they drank the Kool-Aid too, like they'd fall into all kinds of idolatry. I mean, where was the rest of Israel at this point in time? Why does it feel like Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were alone in their faithfulness to God while they're living in Babylon? Like, church, we, we said it so many different times before, but when you are desperate for God to move, I mean, prayer is going to become the most natural thing that you can do. And I think we've seen this a million different times, like when you lost your job and you had no idea where that next paycheck was going to come from or how were you going to pay those bills, like you prayed. Like when your 16-year-old daughter came home with her first boyfriend, you, you prayed. I mean, when 9-11 hit, like the whole entire nation, whether you even believed in God or not, like you were on your knees and you were in prayer because you were desperate for God to move. Church, Daniel was defiant in his prayer because he was desperate for God to move again for the glory of his name. Check this out in chapter 9 with me. You had your fingers in this text, but chapter 9 is an example of Daniel's prayer life. And it's going to be taking place pretty much at the exact same time as what we're reading about in chapter 6. And I want you to see kind of what the content of his prayer looked like. If you've ever... Uh, how many of you guys grew up in a church, you kind of learned the whole Acts model of prayer? Um, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. It's kind of a, uh, a good way to think about how to pray if you're kind of taking those first steps. But adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. We see this all the, all the way through this text as Daniel prays. Check this out in chapter 9, verse 3. So I turned to the Lord God and I pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. That is the level of desperation that we're sensing here from Daniel. I prayed to the Lord my God and I confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That's adoration that's taking place there. The great and awesome God, the faithful God, the God who is loyal in all of his love. That's adoration. Now here comes the confession. And as he gets to this confession, I want you to just notice the amount of we language that's taking place here. Okay, check this out. Verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. All of Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. That's confession, right? It's not sitting there saying, Israel has been so wicked. Those people over there have defied you. I've been faithful. He's recognizing this is a collective weed that's got a problem here. We have all sinned. We have all rebelled against the holiness of God, and I'm included in that thing. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. In other words, uh, God, I recognize that you even warned us about this all the way back in Moses' law. 
This is not being, you being vengeful, God. This is not you being mean, God. You warned us about this. You told us this is going to take place, and this is all on us. We even saw in chapter 6 the thankfulness of Daniel here where he says three times a day he's on his knees giving, uh, praying to God, giving thanks to his God. In other words, Daniel is a prayer warrior who loves to simply be in the presence of God if for no other reason than simply be in the presence of God. But here it is in verse 17. Here's going to be a supplication where he's asking things of God. And I want you to see this. Like, now our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act for your sake, my God. For your sake, my God. Do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Church, that is the prayer of a man that is desperate for God to move. And I love the way that J.D. Greer put it. He said this. He said, effective prayer begins when you're able to perceive the gap between what a situation is and where God wants it to be. Church, are any of you looking around the world and you're perceiving this gap between the way, things go, between the way that God would have things to be and the way things that actually, they actually are? Like, are any of you able to, are able to see this massive gap between what's going to be true in the heavenlies? By the way, this is exactly how Jesus teaches us to pray. You remember this probably in Matthew chapter 6 when he's teaching us the Lord's Prayer. Uh, he begins and he says, um, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Worshipped be your name. And then here's what he says. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in, in heaven. In other words, um, inasmuch as things are true in the heavenlies, Father, I'm recognizing that there's a day that is coming when we are in your heavenlies, when we are with you in your presence. This is going to be a day when there's going to be no more sin. There's going to be no more crying. There's going to be no more death. There's going to be no more pain. There's going to be perfect justice. There's going to be perfect grace that is given out there. And so inasmuch as those things are true, then would you come and bring that kingdom into this world right now? Church, it has been 60 years since the civil rights movement, and there's still racial inequality and tension. So God, come and bring your kingdom now. God, come and bring justice now. God, come and bring your grace right now. We need that right now. We are living in a world where babies um, are treated as lifeless things rather than beloved image bearers of God. So would you come and would you bring your kingdom right now? God, that is not right. There's a, there's a disparity between what you would have, what is right for, for things to be, and where things are right now. God, would you come and bring your kingdom right now? Like the victims of sexual assault and abuse have suffered silently and few have been willing to listen to them. God, would you come and would you bring your kingdom right now? We need perfect justice right now. We need perfect grace right now. We need your compassion right now. We need your healing right now. We need your miraculous power to come into this world right now. Inasmuch as things are different right now from when they will be, when you come and redeem all things, God, would you come and would you bring your, your power now? Church, are we desperate for God to move? Like, are we desperate for God to actually move? I mean, this past week I was reading um, Barna's report on Generation Z, and I just pretty much wanted to weep. Generation Z is um, people who are about three years old and kind of the, the upper teenage years, and they were just talking about the different realities there, and they were talking about it. This is going to be the least church generation that we've ever seen because they do not trust anyone or anything. Like, all that, they've gro- all that they're growing up with is broken homes, where there's been divorce and when there's been abuse and there's been neglect, all they've seen is corruption in politics and all that they've seen is hypocrisy in the church. They're not trusting anything. This is going to be the least 
church generation that we've ever seen. They're talking about how this is going to be the first generation whose entire worldview is being shaped by media and digital technology instead of the home. The family is no longer the most influential thing and dynamic in their life. It's being shaped by media and digital technology and things like that. Like everything that they gather online, they're talking about how this, is the, this generation is twice as likely as the last, the millennials, twice as likely as even millennials to commit suicide because they're unable to escape the comparison trap of the digital world that they live in. Church, I, I don't know what to say. I'm reading that it just went on and on and on and I'm begging God. I'm going, God, you've got to move. Like, we need Daniels in this generation. I hope you know that. Like, we need Daniels in your generation. Like, we need Deborahs in your generation that are going to stand up and say, no more. Like, I don't care what's going on around me. I don't care what everyone's bowing to. I don't care about the pressures that are going on over here. It doesn't matter if I'm alone in this thing. I'm going to be a Daniel. I'm not going to bow. And we need Daniels and we need Deborahs in your generation that are willing to say, I know what's normal and I know what everyone else is doing, but I will not bow no matter the cost. How do you do that? Over 50, 65 years of your entire life, it's three times a day I'm defying the odds on my knees, trusting the Holy Spirit to empower my spirit so that I can overcome the weakness of my flesh. We need Daniels and we need Deborahs. I was reading a Dr. Lewis Baldwin in his book about the prayer life of Martin Luther King Jr. And he made it a point to talk about the defiant prayer life of Dr. King. And he talked about how Dr. King would regularly take personal prayer retreats and he would just shut himself in a hotel room to pray as he pleaded with God to bring the heavenly realities of justice and equality back to America today. Church, if you're Dr. King in the 60s, like how do you live well when you're in Babylon? Like, how do, you, how do you sustain a life well-lived when you're living in Babylon? Like, that's where it is. You're in your hotel room three times a day. You're constantly coming back to the Lord, and you're begging God to move, and you're desperate to see him do something in the world that we are living in, which you cannot do for yourself. Billy Graham was the exact same way. Like, Billy Graham, the most fruitful evangelist probably our world has ever seen, uh, he was asked about the most important thing that he does in preparation for every single evangelistic outreach. And he said, there's three things that matter the most in any evangelistic outreach. You know what they are? Prayer, prayer, and prayer. That's it. It's not the greatest personality. It's not the most wise and, like, and, and, and perfect sales pitch. It's not the music at the timely moment. It's not the emotional high that people get in. It's not a perfect organ or perfect band or any of these things. It's prayer, and it's prayer, and it's prayer because the world that we are living in is a spiritual battle. And there are very real eternal realities that are at hand here. And we need God to move and to do what we cannot do for ourselves. I'll never forget 2001, I, the, the Graham Crusades actually came to College Station. I had a chance to be a part of that from a, from a volunteer and leader perspective there as a student at A&M. And I was struck by just how the entire thing took place. A year and a half before he would ever come into a city, the team went ahead and churches had to be united in the entire city in prayer. Otherwise, they would not come. A year and a half before the date of this outreach, like teams are there and they're gathering all of the churches across denominational boundaries week after week to come and to gather and to pray and to be united in prayer. And they would not come and preach unless the city and the community was desperate for God to move. And guess what? Like the crazy thing is it's exactly what happened. The church united and the church gathered week after week, day after day, and they prayed and they became hungry to see a move of God. And it's exactly what he did. 
they came in, like, I'll never forget those Sundays immediately after the crusade was done. Like, the churches were filled like never before. Like, they were just giving testimonies of, 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 people were coming up and giving testimonies of how they came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. They've received his grace for the very first time. Like, for months afterwards, people are giving testimony to how the Spirit of God has come in and transformed their marriage. It's given them peace inside of their soul for the very first time. They've rested in the grace that God has given to them, the righteousness that God has given to them, which they no longer have to produce for themselves, and the burden that's been relieved from their their shoulders. Like these testimonies are going on and on and on because that is what God does. He moves when his people are disciplined to pray. It's exactly what we see here in Daniel's story. You know the rest of it. Verse 16, the king throws them into the lion's den. Verse 19, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. He actually loved Daniel. He didn't want to do this, but he hurries to the lion's den. And he actually has this glimmer of hope that his God might actually rescue him. And he says that he hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near to the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, may the king live forever humility and respect the man who threw him in the lion's den may the king live forever my god sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions they have not hurt me because i was found innocent in his sight nor have i ever done any wrong before you your majesty and the king was overjoyed and he gave orders to lift daniel out of the den i love this part and when daniel was lifted from the den no wound was found on him why because he had trusted in his god When did Daniel trust in his God? Three times a day, every single day. No matter the cost. Revival breaks out. Verse 24, at the king's command, the men, okay, this is, get over this part. The men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. (laughs) It's a little rough, but still... um, Then King Darius, he wrote to all the nations and the peoples of every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed and his dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of these lions. Verse 28 concludes, So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Church, that's how it's done. How do you live well when you're living in Babylon? Humility, respect, and an unwavering conviction that no matter what's going on around me, I will not ever, 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 ever bow. How do you sustain humility, respect, and unwavering conviction for 65 years when everything around you is antagonistic and against you? Three times a day, he is on his knees, praying, giving thanks to the Lord, just as he has always done, confident of God's power to change and desperate for God to move. Church, may that be true of us.